Starting in the 1960s, a public service announcement, or what we would call a PSA, started being used typically at the beginning of the nightly news broadcast. In an effort to help enforce nightly curfews for minors in various large cities at, at the top of the hour, usually it was 10 p.m., the following question could be heard over radio and seen on television sets. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Anybody remember that? I don't even know how I knew about it, but somehow it came to my mind. We'll call it the Lord, perhaps. Google helped me out. When proposing a nightly youth curfew in the state in early 1961, Massachusetts State Senator William X. Wall notably urged all radio and television broadcasters to ask the question on air so as to remind parents to check up on their children. And the PSA, it, it became so prevalent, so ingrained in culture that Time Magazine featured it as one of the top ten PSAs of all time in one of their publications. It was so recognized and so ingrained that other networks and other companies would often create parodies of this PSA. Like CNBC would say, it's four o'clock, do you know where your money is? And then there was the online job bank, monster.com, it's six o'clock, do you know where your career is? And it would even make spoof appearances in various television series of that day and songs, etc. And its popularity, it remained for more than two decades, until the late 1980s, where it kind of tapered off. And it remains an iconic question etched in the memories of many who lived during that era. Do you know where your children are? Do you know where your children are? And for a few minutes tonight, I would just like all of us to consider this question. And I know that maybe that sounds like a strange way to set up a sermon, to frame a message. And I certainly am addressing our parents and our families tonight and this is what the Lord drew me to, and I could not get away from it. And I don't know, we're somewhere in between Mother's Day and Father's Day, and so we'll just go with this. And I certainly am addressing that stage of life, parents, and certainly those that have children or teens still living at home. But even for those of us whose kids are grown and they're moved out of the house, or even those that have never had children, I am preaching to all of us today. Because whether or not you have ever been or ever will be a biological parent, all of us who are a part of the church can serve as spiritual mothers or spiritual fathers to those among us who are young in their faith. Because the Bible says that the Lord setteth the solitary in families. And there's probably somebody in the church that God wants you to take notice of and to take under your wing. Now, I take our attention tonight to Luke chapter 2. And we draw our attention to Jesus himself, the most significant person in all of human history. You may be surprised to realize that we don't know much about most of his life. The scripture, it documents his birth and a few things from those first couple of years. But, but after that, we don't see much else until Jesus is about 30 years old. And that's a long chunk of time where the scripture is essentially silent on the most important man in all of human history, the most important person that ever lived. And the only exception to this rule is an interesting event from when Jesus was 12 years old. Luke chapter 2, 41 tells the story. Now every year, Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, they went 
to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. Now you may understand and know that it was mandatory for Jews in those days and under the Old Testament covenant to make the journey to Jerusalem for various, fe- various festivals throughout the year. Uh, three in particular, that they would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And Passover was one of those feast days, one of those festivals. And, and so Mary and Joseph, with young Jesus at their side, they did what God required of them. And they made their journey to Jerusalem. But what happens next is what captures our attention. Verse 43, after the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us that his parents, they didn't miss him at first, and here's why, verse 44, and please take note of this statement. Because they assumed that he was with, uh, that he was among, excuse me, the other travelers. They assumed that Jesus was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and their friends. And I can only imagine that intense fear and concern began to grip them as they frantically searched among the caravan of travelers, looking for Jesus. Have you seen Jesus? Have have you seen our son? He was with us earlier today, but we haven't seen him since this morning. Have you seen him? Where is he? Of course, this is before the days of cell phones and This is before the days of technology, and there was no way to send a text, no way to make a phone call. So no doubt you can imagine, you can appreciate the helpless feeling that Mary and Joseph are feeling right now. When they realized that Jesus wasn't with them and he wasn't among the travelers, they turned back to Jerusalem. And after three days of searching, they finally found Jesus. And he is among the religious teachers in the temple. He is listening to their wisdom. He is asking them questions. And everybody there is amazed and astounded that this young man had such understanding. And the answers even that he would give, even at 12 years old. And we all know, we all understand that Jesus was not off getting into trouble. Jesus was not being a hooligan or a renegade. We know that he was in the house of God, which is a great place to be, right? He was being about his father's business, so, so none of that is bad. But it, it is not lost on me, and it shouldn't be lost on us, the fact that Mary and Joseph, they lost Jesus nonetheless. How in the world does something like this happen? We've already said it. He's the most important person in all of human history, certainly the most important person that, that is in Mary and Joseph's life, their son, Jesus. How How does this happen? And not just to lose track for a short time. I mean, if you're a parent, maybe you've had that moment when you look away for a moment or or a couple of minutes and then you look back and your child has just vanished without a trace. Anybody ever felt that just sudden instant feeling of helplessness and the lump in your throat and my wife is going to kill me? Because it's always the husband, isn't it? Wives have eyes in the back of their head and everywhere else, you know. We all know what that feeling is like, but this was not Mary and Joseph. It wasn't just for a moment. It was literally for a full day before they realized Jesus' absence. Now, this evening, I can't pinpoint for us exactly what happened, and I'm certainly not trying to incriminate Mary and Joseph. These are good, godly people after all. But I believe that spiritually that same sort of thing can happen to us if we are not careful. Because Mary and Joseph notice that they lost track of their son while they were in the process 
of doing something good for God. They, they were caught up in their spiritual obligations, making their journey home from the Passover celebration. This was a good thing, a godly thing, a wholesome thing. It was the will of God what they were doing. That was what Mary and Joseph were involved in, the right things. They were serving and living for God, and they thought that Jesus was along for the journey, but he wasn't. Verse 44, again, in the King James Version this time, but they, supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey. They carried on as usual, marching onward for the Lord, as it were, and their mistake as parents was that they assumed that their son was with them, but he wasn't. Jesus got lost in the shuffle of his parents' assumption. Lost in the shuffle of assumption. And I preach tonight, I know maybe a unique message, and if this, if this doesn't resonate with you, pardon me, but for, but for whoever it is for, I know it's for somebody today, and I know I'm preaching to myself today, and to every other biological parent, and every other spiritual mother and father in this church, that we must not assume that the youngest among us are getting this by proxy. We must not take for granted that they are automatically gleaning every principle and hearing every promise that is preached. We can't afford to make the same mistake that Mary and Joseph made, supposing that our children are along for the journey with us. And if we aren't careful, even when we are doing the right things, going to church, living for God, paying our tithe, giving our offering, being faithful, even while we are doing those things, sometimes our children get lost in the shuffle. I'm preaching tonight that while we are doing our things, serving God, we have to pause every once in a while and, and make sure that we're paying attention to the spiritual state of the next generation. Do you know where your children are? And it is not a question of physical location. It's a question of spiritual positioning. Like when God uh, came before Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, Adam, where are you? It was not a question about their physical location. It was about their spiritual position in relation to God. And so I, I just asked the question tonight, parents, certainly with those, those with children or teens in your home, do you know where your children are? CCC, church family, do we know where our children are? Those that are young in their faith and those that are new babes in Christ, if you will. Do we know where they are? Do we know their spiritual state? Are we aware of the, the, the spiritual status of those among us who, who maybe don't know everything yet and they, they haven't learned to stand on their own two feet? Are we so caught up in our religious routines and just going through the spiritual motions that, that we neglect like Mary and Joseph did to pause and look around for somebody who may be lacking behind, lagging behind. I, I'm reminded tonight of when Moses went before Pharaoh and how he repeatedly declared to that pagan king, let my people go. And the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 10, one such occasion, so Moses and Aaron, they were brought back to Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh looks at Moses and Aaron, and he knows the, the, the declaration. He knows the demand before it even comes. And, and, and Pharaoh says, all right, go and worship the Lord your God. But then he asks the question, but who exactly will be going with you? And Moses replied, we will all go. How else would it be? Young and old. 
our sons and daughters, they're coming with us, Pharaoh, and our flocks and our herds. We must all join together in celebrating a festival to the Lord. And this did not sit well with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh looks back at God's man, and he retorted, The Lord certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. Never, Pharaoh said. Only the men may go and worship the Lord, since that is what you requested. And Pharaoh threw them out of his palace. Pharaoh looked at Moses, and he said, You can go ahead, and you can offer your sacrifices to the Lord, but you leave your children behind. Pharaoh was not at all concerned about the Israelites doing their thing for God as long as they were willing to do it without the next generation by their side. And not much has changed, brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen. Hell is still the same. I believe that our adversary is okay with our service to the kingdom and our faithfulness to God as long as we are satisfied to do it without our children by our side. But I ask us tonight, do you know, do we know where our children are? I want them standing right beside me, serving God, worshiping God, offering our best to God together. I wish you'd clap your hands for a moment. I feel the Lord helping us today. Yeah, you go ahead, you, you worship God, but, but leave your children behind. Get caught up doing the right things, but leave your children behind. It is no secret that the world is more than happy to indoctrinate our children, to fill their minds with lies, and to lead them down destructive paths. And if you don't know that, with all respect, you've got your head in the sand and you need to bring it up and look around. This world is not friendly. This world does not play nice. They play for keeps and they are after the next generation. They are after our children. And we have got to be aware of the state, the spiritual state of the next generation. This world is more than happy to fill the vacuum if we allow one to exist and not rise to our calling to worship God with our children. We must never get to the place where we, you know, we're personally fulfilling our spiritual obligations as fathers and mothers, biologically and spiritually, fathers and mothers. But we don't bring our children along for the journey. Do you know where your children are? Solomon said in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we often talk about raising children, but the scripture does not say to raise up a child. It says to train up a child. I'll never forget, this, this has been stuck in my mind for many years. I remember Aaron Bounds, a friend of this church, a powerful preacher of the gospel. He made the statement in reference to this verse. He said, you raise chickens, but you train children. And there's a difference, a marked difference between the two. One is a passive approach, essentially making sure that they're getting the bare minimums and the basic necessities, but the other, training, it is an intentional approach where you take the time to talk to your children and instill in them godly values and recognize where they're at in their walk with the Lord and in life. It's the difference between just assuming that they are getting it because you're doing it and putting your arm around them and making sure that they are walking with you as you serve the Lord. Train up a child. Talk to your children. Talk about the goodness of God every single day. 
when you rise up and when you lay down. Talk of it in your homes. Talk about it to your children. Do we know where they are today? Are we aware of their spiritual state? Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath in the KJV. In the NIV, do not exasperate your children, but instead bring them up in the training and in the instruction of the Lord. And so I say to us today, let's not get so caught up in the routine of it all. Just making our journey back home after a powerful Passover. Wasn't that a great Passover? Just get caught up in the hustle and bustle and in the shuffle of it all. We make the assumption that our kids are with us, our children are with us, but they're not. And we, we neglect to stop long enough and look around and make sure that they're still on the journey with us. I observe that this sort of thing, it happens in, it happened in the book of Acts chapter 20. Verse 7, it says, and upon the first day of the week, everyone say it was Sunday. It was Sunday and church was rocking, I got to tell you. I listened to David Smith preach today. I, I guess the church was rocking. I got the spirit of David Smith on me. It was Sunday. And the disciples, not just the 12, but all the disciples, they came together to break bread. And Paul preached unto them. Yes, that Paul. The Apostle Paul. The traveling missionary. The dramatic, drastic Damascus Road conversion Paul. I mean, he's kind of like, you know, this itinerant preacher. and He's popular. And everyone's excited. And woo, it's church today. And Paul, he's ready to depart on the morrow. He's about to go on a long journey. And my goodness, you know, back in those days, they were going to see him for a long time, so they're shouting him down, preach on, preach on, Paul. And he doesn't disappoint. The Bible says that he continued his speech until midnight. Not going to go there tonight, I promise. Verse 8. There were many lights in that upper chamber in that service on that Sunday where they were gathered together. Everyone say there was a lot of light. There was a lot of light in that church service and in that room. We know what that is in reference to. The entrance of thy words giveth light. So there was light there. There was the word of God there. There was illumination and revelation. And that's what happens when the word of God is declared and it was happening there that day. It was a physical reality but also a spiritual symbol of of that, of that gathering, there was a lot of light. But verse 9 is what is striking to me. It says, and there sat in a window a certain young man. Everyone say, a young man. His name was Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep, and he fell down from the third loft, and he was taken up dead. Now, thankfully, if you know the story, Eutychus was fine. He died on impact, but Paul goes down and he prays over him, and that young man was raised back to life, and all of that is powerful, and we celebrate the outcome. But I, I do have a question about the text, and my question is this. Why was Eutychus allowed to sit in the window in the first place? Why was everybody else okay with this young man sitting on the periphery, half in and half out? Why did nobody take the time to look around the room and notice that the next generation was, was only sort of engaged? They were in the right place. They were doing the right things. Church was rocking. Paul was preaching. It was a long service. It was a blowout, whatever you want to say. The word was being declared. And there was a lot of light in that room. But nonetheless, the young man, Eutychus, he was able to exist on the fringe. And as a result, he had a falling out with God, literally. 
And he lost his life, albeit for a few minutes perhaps, but, but it's because he was able to exist on the fringe. And I am convinced today that it is possible for all of us, for any of us to get so caught up having great church and being blessed by all that God is doing and, and just getting caught up in the routine and the motions of it all. But do you know where your children are? Are, you, are, are we all aware of the spiritual status and state of the young generation and those who are new to their faith, the new babes in Christ, those that are perhaps recently born again of the water and of the Spirit. I'm not just preaching to the biological parents in the room. I'm preaching to everybody. Are we aware of their state? Do we know where our children are? I'm challenging today some, some mothers and some fathers in, in the Spirit and, and in our homes. I'm challenging us both, both spiritually and physically to make sure that that we are taking the time and making the effort to pull our children close alongside us. And don't just assume that they are good because they're in the room. Eutychus was in the room, but he was on the fringe. He was on the periphery, half in and half out. And what Eutychus needed was for somebody to bring him in from the fringe and be an intentional example to him. And, hey, Eutychus, you can sit right here beside me. Come on, I'm just preaching tonight. It's time to pull Eutychus out of the window. It's time to find somebody young in their faith, the, the younger generation, and put our arm around them and take them under our wing and bring them close. It's time to wake our children up out of their slumber and get them involved in the work of the kingdom and the things of God. Come on, don't coddle your children and, and don't expect less of them. Come on, get them engaged in what God is doing. I'm glad that we have great church, but I want the next generation to be sitting right beside me, equally being as changed in the presence of God. I don't want the younger generation to miss it. Can I tell us today, it is God's intention for not just the old among us, the seasoned among us, those that have been in this a long time. It's not just his intention for revival to happen through us, but God's intention is for this to be a multi-generational effort. Peter preached it, and he quoted the prophet Joel, Acts 2, 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. We ought to clap our hands right there on that one. I still believe in God that he's going to come good on his word, and he's doing it every day. But Joel didn't stop, and Peter didn't stop, and he said, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. If it is not flowing and moving and operating in the younger generation and we have not fully tapped in to the potential of end time revival that the Lord desires to give to his church. And it's not just your old men dreaming dreams, but Peter quoted, and your young men shall see visions. It is a multi-generational effort for revival in the end time church. So I just say, I, I just say, I want to see that happen. I want to see my children, and I want to see the children in this congregation. I want to see the younger generation rise up and fulfill their purpose in these end times. But I play a part in that, and you do too. We all do. Do you know where your children are? We've already mentioned Moses. He was a man who was called of God. He led Israel out of Egypt. He was the one who was willing to stand face to face with Pharaoh. Moses was a bad man in the best sense of the word. 
don't mess with Moses. Everyone say, don't mess with Moses. But for all the good that he did, Moses seemed to have a blind spot, and that was with his own son. For the Bible says in Exodus 4.24, on the way to Egypt, I mean, he has just had the burning bush experience. He has just agreed to do what God has called him to do. Okay, God, I'm ready. Let's go. And so they're on the way to Egypt, and they're at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night. And this is strange to me. The Lord confronted him, and the Lord was about to kill him. And, I, you know, again, this is, this is fresh off of Moses saying yes to the will of God and the call of God. And I just kind of scratch my head, and I'm like, okay, what? what? What is going on here? God wants to kill Moses. We didn't even start this journey hardly, God, and you're wanting to wipe him out. He literally has just left Midian in the comfort of his father-in-law Jethro's house, and he's on his way to do what God had told him to do. So why is God mad enough at Moses to kill him? Well, as you may know, the Old Testament sign of the covenant was circumcision. It was customary and it was mandatory that all the baby boys on the eighth day were to be circumcised. And if a man was uncircumcised, then they were not a part of the covenant. It was an outward sign of an inward devotion and loyalty to God. And I know that this is foreign to us today. It's an Old Testament rite and custom and, and it's a part of the, the Mosaic law. But Moses he would have understood how important this was. This went all the way back to Abraham. And so he was not unfamiliar. It was, it was not lost on him the importance of circumcision. But in verse 25, we see that Moses' wife Zippor, and I won't read the scriptures because honestly, they're just kind of strange. If you've read them, you know it's just these strange scriptures and this strange passage where Zipporah, Moses' wife, takes a sharp stone and she circumcises their son right there and then. And it was only after she did that that God left Moses alone and let him live. Isn't it amazing that Moses, again, was literally in the process of fulfilling the call of God upon his life. He was doing the right thing. He was doing a good thing. And it was for God. But all the while, his own son wasn't even a part of the covenant of Israel. Moses was faithfully doing what God had spoken. But he hadn't taken the time to address the spiritual condition of his own child. But you can see how serious God was about this. So serious. This is so important because it seems that God was not interested in using Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt if Moses was not even willing to lead his own son in righteousness. Moses said, or God said to Moses, there's something you got to take care of first. We got to get some things in order at home first. We, we got to make sure that we're leaned in properly with your son first. Lead there, and then I can trust you to lead elsewhere. When we look in the New Testament, there's various places where the qualifications of leadership is laid out. And Paul addresses Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer, they desire a noble task. There's nothing wrong with It's wonderful. It's, it's a great thing. It's a noble thing to want to serve and lead in the kingdom of God for the right reasons, of course. But as you read down, I won't read all of it, but verse 4, it tells us one of the qualifications. That person must manage his own family well. And see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Because if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? I was reminded today as I was preparing and 
And I just feel the Lord helping us right now. And please receive this in the spirit that it is given. And I am not preaching a message if things have not turned out the way that you would have wished. And maybe your children are grown and they made some decisions that you didn't approve of. I'm not indicting anybody tonight, but I'm just preaching that we gotta, we got to be aware of, of the state of, of the next generation. And I, I remember Wayne Huntley, he was preaching it because the times in 2008, and he made this statement. He said, what you believe concerning holiness, and I will add anything concerning righteous living. He said, it's not confirmed in how you live, but it's confirmed in how you let your kids live. And that was the problem with Moses, and it almost took his life. He wasn't even concerned whether or not his own son was a part of the covenant of Israel. And here he is about to go and and see them be delivered by the hand of God. I'm reminded of Eli, the priest in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. He he was a, a priest in the tabernacle, perhaps the high priest. And he faithfully fulfilled his priestly duties. But one way that he failed was by neglecting his parental duties. He was doing the right things. He was doing the will and the work of God and fulfilling the call of God, but not when it came to his own sons. His sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they were also involved as priests, but they had no respect for the tabernacle or for the things of God. And the Bible says the sons of Eli, they were the sons of Belial. That means the sons of wickedness. They were scoundrels, hooligans, and they knew not the Lord. They had no personal connection with God, and they couldn't have cared less about what their father was involved in. They would desecrate the offerings brought by the people, and they would take the best portions for themselves rather than allowing them to be offered to God. They would even go so far as to commit sexually immoral acts right there in the entrance of the tabernacle. And Eli, he didn't necessarily agree with their actions, but he didn't put a stop to them either. Eli was guilty of neglecting his parental duties toward his sons because, and this is the Bible, a Bible phrase, 1 Samuel 3.13, he restrained them not. And as a result of Eli's neglect, the Lord said, Eli, your house is being cut off from my favor and, and that as a sign of this, to prove that I'm going to come good on my word, both of your sons will die on the same day. Now, I, I know maybe this is a little bit heavy right now in this moment, but, but I'm just trying to, to illustrate through the scripture that we can get so caught up doing good things, right things. Going into Pharaoh, let my people go. I'm going to do that. And we can, be, we can be involved in the tabernacle, in the house of God itself. Caught up doing the right things and caught up doing the will of God. To the point where I fail to realize that my children are not along for the journey with me. And so what I am preaching, and what I am challenging us, and what I feel the Holy Ghost is challenging us with today. Is to pull them close. And call them to a greater level of involvement and consecration and say you're better than that. And there's, there's greatness on you. God has something powerful for your life. And not be satisfied to do our duties for the Lord by ourselves, but do it with our children. But first we've got to ask the question, do you know where your children are? I close. Music, join me. Everyone say, do you know where your children are? We know the story in the Old Testament. 
we'll close with basically just this. Abraham has received the promise from God. His promised son, Isaac. And there is such jubilation and joy and celebration at this moment in their lives. He and Sarah are just elated. Can you imagine after having waited some 25 years for God to come good on his promise and finally it happens and Isaac is born and they're just celebrating. But we know in Genesis 22 how God said, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son Isaac, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. Offer your your son as, as a sacrifice to me. And without hesitation, without really much question, Abraham just obeys and he goes and, and, and he starts on his way. He starts on the journey to do what God has called him to do, as difficult and as weighty a thing as it might be. But what I find amazing and powerful, and I understand that Isaac was, was involved in all of this, so perhaps just granted, of course he would go, but, but I think that this statement is just so powerful nonetheless. Because Abraham said unto his young men, men, Genesis 22, verse 5, you guys abide here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship. I'm going, but my son's coming too. I and the lad will go yonder and worship, and we will come again to you. I think we all, perhaps, most of us understand the bigger context of this passage and this story. This this is a picture of Calvary and how that ram in the thicket became the substitutionary lamb in the man, Christ Jesus, to die in our place and shed his blood for our sins so that we wouldn't have to die. This really was never about Isaac dying. This was about God providing himself a lamb as a substitute. The picture of Calvary. So I understand all of that, but simply notice with me that Abraham wanted to worship God with his son. I want to worship God. I want to do what God is calling me to do, but I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it with my son. I want to do it with my son. I want to do it with the next generation. And not only was Isaac brought along for the ride, but I love that Isaac was involved. Because verse 6, it tells us that Abraham, he, he not only gets Isaac to just join him casually and just haphazardly, yeah, just come along. But Abraham, he took the wood that he had prepared for the burnt offering, and he actually lays it upon his son, Isaac. And then Abraham turns around and he grabs grabs the knife and he grabs a torch of fire. And they both, they went, both of them together. And so Isaac has the wood, Abraham has the torch and a knife, and my question is to all of us, who was it that carried the heavier load? Of course, the obvious answer, Isaac, the younger generation, carried the heavier load in their effort to worship the Lord. I write unto you, young men, because you are strong, Paul said. Can I tell our church family that that we ought not to coddle 
the next generation, but that they can handle the burden of living for God. Our children can handle and carry a burden for the lost. They, they can carry the burden. I know sometimes we think, oh, that's a heavy burden. I'm not sure I want to put it on them. But they can handle a burden to minister to others. And they can feel the weight of the burden of prayer and worship. They can handle it. So don't be ashamed to get them involved. Don't be afraid to get them engaged in, their, in worshiping the Lord together. And don't just say, here's a little piece, here's a little bit. But no, just go ahead and put the wood on their shoulders and let them feel the weight of God's glory and let them feel the burden of living for God. It will strengthen them. The worst thing we can do for our children is coddle them because it will cripple them. They can handle it, and it will bless them. It's, I, I know maybe, maybe a strange message. Do you know where your children are today? Do we as a church family know where our spiritual children are in this house? Where, where are they? Are they sitting on the periphery? Are they half in, half out? Are they falling asleep? It's time to go and pull them close. Moms and dads, do you know where your children are? Are we so caught up in just doing the things of God that we don't even realize that they're lagging behind and they're still back, they're still back, and we've just gone on for a whole day not even realizing that they're not by our side. We must not leave our children behind. We must not leave this next generation behind as we journey onward. But we must involve them in worshiping God. We must do it together and allow them to feel the weight of God's glory. I close as you stand. I just say this, that God intends, God intends for faith to be transmitted. God can do a whole lot for us, but there's some things that God leans on humanity to do. For example, how shall they hear without a preacher, right? And I just believe that, that God, He intends for faith to be transmitted, transmitted from life to life. Vessel to vessel, and in particular for our purpose tonight, I would say from parents to children. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 5, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, Timothy, there's something on you, Timothy. I recognize it. It's powerful, but I know how it got there. It dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that it is in thee also. And Timothy became who he was. We celebrate Paul a whole lot. There's nothing wrong with that. He certainly played a part in Timothy's ministry. But it began with a godly mother and with a godly grandmother that weren't willing to see him sit on the periphery. Weren't willing to just carry on doing the things of God to the neglect of their own child and grandchild. But they said, Timothy, we're doing this together. There's something on you. There's something in you, Timothy. And the faith that was on them, it got on him. And I'll just say this. This is, this is just an aside, but I think it's important to say. Scripture would indicate and some would speculate that Timothy didn't have a father that served God. Timothy's father was a Greek, the Bible says. And so even in an undesirable circumstance, perhaps Eunice's mother is living as a single parent in a spiritual sense, but that didn't stop her from believing in her boy pulling him close and saying, hey, God's got something for you. 
she had an idea of where her son was. And she was not going to leave anything to chance. But she intentionally pulled her son close. I wonder tonight, I just want to pray as families. And then we're going to gather together as a church family. Because again, we are all, if we've been in this for any length of time, God needs you to be a spiritual father or mother to somebody in his church. There's a Eutychus around here somewhere that you can lean in with. And so I wonder if every family, if you're here, if you just want to come, maybe, maybe your family members aren't here, but you're just want to, wanting to come and represent your family, can we step out of where we are if it's at all possible for kids, children, teens to get with your mom and dad? Start, let's start moving right now if we would. Moms and dads, get with your children. Gather together. I want to physically stand together. But spiritually, I just feel to pray over our families tonight, over our moms and dads, because we're going to worship the Lord together. We're going to serve the Lord together. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Let's make room for everybody coming. There's, there's people coming up the aisle. Can we just step forward, those that are, that are at the altar? This is beautiful. Aren't we thankful for all of our families in the church of the living God and at CCC? God has been so good, but God is not done. And I believe that this next generation is one that God has great power and anointing upon. They are saturated and dripping with the purposes of God. The Lord has saved the best for last. But moms and dads, we play a part in that. So as our parents, if we can just get a hold of our families and, and the rest of our church family, I would love it if everybody would just join us at the front because we're going to pray as a church family. You are a spiritual mother or father. Come on, the church is the mother of us all. And God needs you too. So as you gather, can we just begin to pray together as families and lift our voices? And can we just moms and dads pray an anointing and pray an unction upon our sons and daughters? God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. But God, we're believing our sons and our daughters shall prophesy. Our young men are going to see visions and our old men are going to dream dreams. Multi-generational, God. We're believing you for it, Jesus. I would that there would be a father in the house of the Lord tonight that would lift your voice with a boldness over your family. Come on, I know what hell's agenda is for your child, for your children. I know what hell's agenda is for our homes and for our families. But as Pastor preached this morning, we're putting a stake in the ground and we're saying, not this family and not these children. Come on, lift your voice with boldness, mom and dad. Lift your voice with boldness, family of God.